This is Phantom Power. For some odd reason, people just talking calms me. I use these voices to drown out the ones in my head. For some odd reason, people just talking calms me. Hello, and welcome to our 25th episode of Phantom Power, a podcast on sound in the arts and humanities. I'm Mac Haygood. That was a taste of a piece called For Some Odd Reason. It's by our guest today, Kate Carr, an artist whose recent work has been grappling a lot with issues of communication and longing, (laughs) themes I think we can all relate to in the COVID era. But before we meet Kate Carr and get into her work, I want to do a little thinking out loud about the different kinds of audio work that we've featured on this show over the past three years. That's right. We just hit Phantom Power's three-year anniversary. I got the idea of doing a show on Carr while reading a piece in Tusk is Better Than Rumors, a newsletter by scholar and music writer Matthew Blackwell. You might also know Matthew as a contributor to the music letter Tone Glow. Well, anyway, in this piece, he was reviewing Carr's career, but he was using it to think about different kinds of field recording. Matthew describes Kate Carr's earlier pieces as sound portraits that capture the unique sonic properties of places from Iceland to Thailand, to France. But Matthew says that Carr's work has increasingly moved into a genre that he calls a sound essay. Matthew Blackwell describes sound essays like this. A sound essay is a piece of audio consisting of two or more recordings taken outside of a studio setting, which are edited together with the goal of addressing a specific theme or idea. I'd like to stress the essay half of the term, which I use in the original Montanian sense, meaning an initial tentative effort or the result or product of an attempt. As a verb, to essay is to attempt, to try, to take a stab at explaining or working through an idea. It has a connotation of failure as a foregone conclusion, or at least of the impossibility of perfect success. An essay in its original form was always tentative, always contingent. 
This is doubly true of an audio essay because its very form, like the photo essay, requires substantial participation from the listener in order to illuminate its subject. However, as Matthew points out, the terminology and practices for audio work always seem to be in flux, and others have completely different terms for similar kinds of work to what he's describing as a sound essay. So for example, in the past, we've had Colin Black on our show. His practice of radio art has both similarities and differences with Matthew's idea of the sound essay. Well, the way I make pieces in general is that I pick a topic, I research the topic, I read about the topic. If, I, if the topic is about a place, then I go to the place and I record as much as I can about the place. It's basically, in my mind, I'm researching something and instead of writing about it, I write an audio piece about it or a sound art piece. And it's not a literal journalistic approach, it's more of an abstract approach of how to communicate my findings from that topic. Where Matthew emphasizes the unfinished and contingent nature of the essay, Colin focuses on the sharing of findings, if in a completely unconventional and evocative way. By the way, check out episode 20 to hear more of Colin Black and his radio art. Kunst Radio, Radio Kunst. They propose that radio art is nothing more than what artists do with radio which is kind of simplistic in a way, but when you think about it, it's quite radical. Because um, what artists do with radio is not necessarily what um, radio people want done with radio. Moving even further in this direction, we can think about the work of Jacob Smith, the director of Northwestern University's Sound Arts Program, whose last two scholarly books came out as highly produced audio-only works. Now That Escapes episodes exist as digital files available online, not only can I mash them up with contemporary sound art, but I can manipulate them, zooming in to details that were left in the background of the original broadcast. Check out episode 12 for more on Jake. Or we could think about Anna M. Williams, whose My Gothic Dissertation transformed the dissertation into a This American Lifestyle podcast series. The only thing that makes the creature into a monster was Victor's abandonment of it, which I read as a moment in which he becomes a turncoat, a traitor to his own convictions, a sellout who gives in to his intellectual detractors. See episode 15 if you want to hear more about that. Thinking about all of this got me imagining a spectrum of work that uses sound as a form of communication. At one end, maybe we can call it left field, I imagined a field recording, a piece of music concrete. It's intended by its creator to have no literal or figurative meaning at all. Instead, its creator wants you to simply hear it as a sound object to use Pierre Schaeffer's term, to listen only to the inherent musicality or texture of the sound itself. At the other end, right field, I heard a dry reading of a scholarly paper 
both spoken and recorded cleanly and efficiently. The creator of this recording doesn't want you to think about the recording itself, only the meaning of the words being spoken. The recording, even the voice itself, should disappear in an act of purely semantic listening as the medium fades, leaving only the message behind. With this spectrum in mind, ranging from the perfectly materialist sound object on one side to the perfectly idealist verbal message on the other, perhaps we could classify all of the field recordings and sonic works ever made. Perhaps Collins' radio art would be center-left. It's research-based, and it has findings to communicate, but it's also elliptical and evocative in its presentation. An audio dissertation or scholarly audiobook might be center-right. These authors care deeply about sounds and music and production, but they also have the scholarly duty to present research findings in well-crafted and intelligible sentences, paragraphs, and chapters. And thus, the written book still leaves its mark on the audiobook. As defined by Matthew Blackwell, a sound essay might be located pretty far to the left, as its meanings come from the collision of sounds rather than the collision of words. As a thematic or conceptual field recording assemblage, it's much more a sonic and affective exploration of a theme than a communication of findings on a topic. But here's the thing, and I know some of you have already been shouting this objection during my description. When we really think about this spectrum I've proposed, from sound as a pure object on one side to sound as pure meaning on the other, it all falls apart. As the sound scholar Brian Kane has written, sound can never function as a mere object. Sound is always a relationship between a particular resonance, space, time, and listener. A listener with a history and a range of associations that will be triggered by that relationship. In other words, there's no such thing as pure sound, and therefore any sound work is always already conceptual. And on the other side, no sound work, even the dullest recording of a written report, is ever purely conceptual. There is always the sound of the breath, the grain of the voice, the resonance of the body, the hiss of the tape or the mic preamp, the artifacts of the compression algorithm. Every recording contains a sonic world of nonverbal communication. And when we think of it this way, our spectrum starts to eat its own tail. The material is always conceptual, and the conceptual is always material. Sound is always resonance and meaning, and the two can never be completely teased apart. Signal and noise are one. Those are some thoughts that I've been having on sound and meaning in audio genres.
On this, our 25th episode, three years into this podcast, Phantom Power. I'd love to get your thoughts as well. Send me an email at mhagood, H-A-G-O-O-D, at miamioh.edu. Back in a minute with someone else who's been thinking a lot about sound and communication, field recordist Kate Carr. out just a little minute everybody please if you like the show go rate us on itunes like us on facebook hit us up on twitter helps us all to rise since she began it in 2010 kate carr's work as a musician and field recordist has taken her around the world from her native australia to a doctoral program at the university of arts london She's been featured in the New York Times, The New Yorker, The Wire, and Pitchfork, and she runs the field recording label Flaming Pines. Kate says her work began rather conventionally, but always contained the seeds of something more challenging and complex. I think I did start doing works that were, yeah, I think more in line with some of the conventions of, I suppose, what existed at the time. So, you know, I suppose works that used quite a lot of natural environment recordings from various places I'd, I'd visited in Australia, different bushland and different sort of water-based environments and things like that. Um, and then I think even at that time, I was quite interested in using bad recordings or glitched recordings. So that was probably something that I did that was a little bit less typical um, when you, in terms of those sorts of compositions. And I also did use a little bit of kind of sounds of myself, even handling noise or just myself moving through those environments. And I guess that sort of focus on things that are usually left out, all the types of recordings that weren't usually used at that time. And then also, yeah, I mean, I think then the extra layer on top of that was having a little bit more of a conceptual focus, um, actually using a sound piece to try and think about a particular thing or a particular kind of phenomenon or a particular way that we have of relating a particular moment. Over time, Kate Carr's work became increasingly conceptual, moving into what Matthew Blackwell calls the sound essay, using sound to address topics such as nuclear power, gentrification, and climate change. The through line in all of her works is her attempt to articulate the relationship between people and place through sound. Most broadly, it's about how listening and how the sound, what the soundscape itself can tell us about the ways in which spaces are formed, really, the ways in which we make space together. Um, so I think, you know, there's lots of things around the soundscape, around sort of the relationality of it, the, the kind of listening as well as sounding acts, 
you know, questions of, of who gets heard and who doesn't, whose voice is the loudest, whose aren't, what sounds are masked and what sounds aren't, which are all really interesting when, when at least to me, when we think about space and power and how spaces are constituted in ways which, you know, are, are for the benefit of, of not everyone. Um, and I like sort of the capacity sound gives me to think about those questions. Since slightly before the pandemic, the theme of communication at a distance, which is always implicit in field recording, has taken center stage in her work. Today we examine three pieces by Kate Carr. Each one explores how sound helps us communicate at a distance and comforts us in moments of loneliness. The first of these pieces, 2019's Contact, meditates on sonic connection through media by sampling the sounds of those media themselves, radio, Morse code, sonar, satellite, Bluetooth, and wireless. Despite the rather cold tones of Morse code, or the harshness of radio static, these sounds represent a communication across a distance that can make us feel less alone. Contact was inspired in part by Carr's own move from Sydney to Belfast several years earlier. I, I had lived um, a super busy and connect and just like always with people life when I was in Sydney because um, of working and I'd, I'd lived there for a long time so I knew lots of people so when I moved to Belfast and I was working from home um, I was you know that was a huge adjustment and I remember thinking about oh well I'd, I'd like to kind of know more about Belfast and so I turned on the radio and there was that it was kind of a really strange and I and I realized the power of radio like quite a powerful thing to hear so my partner would go out to work and I'd be like, and the house would be really quiet, which I wasn't used to working in, in such quiet environment. And I was like, oh, wow, it's, it's so different to have someone's voice kind of in your house, even if you don't know them. So I guess I started thinking about radio in, in that way back then. Um, but of course, there's so many now different ways that we, that we connect um, to each other, obviously not just radio. And, and I guess I was thinking about the potential of them and then also the limitations 
of of some of those ways and and i guess kind of also the amazing determination people have if they decide they do really want to stay in contact with someone or someone touches them in some way that we do have this kind of amazing tenacity sometimes to stay in touch Thinking back on the way radio kept her company, Kate considered the evolution of communications technology. With each generation, new sonic phenomena emerge, from the dots and dashes of Morse code to the digital squall of dial-up modems. In the piece, Carr reconnects these sounds to the human voice by asking friends to utter the phrase dot dash zero one. Dot dash zero one. In fact, asking friends to read aloud features in all three of the pieces we're hearing today. Many of the voices belong to Kate's fellow sound artists, including our own past guests, Lawrence English and Teresa Barroso. It was amazing to be able to build kind of a choir um, out of these just voices that had been sent to me over the internet. One. One. following year, a commission from the BBC led Kate to create Where to Begin, an exploration of a different kind of communication, love letters. Where to Begin features people reading love letters in various languages, accompanied by the sounds of pen scratching on paper. upon love letters because I, I, I felt like as a field recordist you often work alone uh, in terms of especially taking recordings and so that I suppose because of that was that's kind of my practice 
I was also thinking about these acts we do alone that are actually acts of connection because I can I can find the act of field recording, you know, a very profound act of that makes me feel very connected um, to the world and to other people, even if I don't know them. There's something kind of lovely about listening to to the world. And I was thinking, what other acts do we have in our lives that are a little bit more um, accessible to people who, who aren't field recordists, which are um, acts we do alone to try and to connect to other people. So that's that's how I came on upon this idea of oh well you know love letters is is one way that we that we do um, that we do kind of gather ourselves alone in an attempt to to connect to someone else. Io voglio augurarci una felice vita aliena insieme e per sempre. Ti amo. The act of writing a love letter, usually a silent way of communicating across distances, is made audible through the readings of letters in several languages and through close-up recordings of pen on paper. But much of the magic in the piece comes from something else entirely. So I bought loads of different sized glass beads and I brought up this um, beaker, this scientific beaker, which I, which was the main thing I played live and then I just played little things on the keyboard. Um, so it, I don't know, I suppose it's sort of, there's something about dropping things that I just found really beautiful. There's sort of like their passage through space and time, their landing. They sound, they sound really evocative somehow to me. Finally, the third piece in this trilogy of isolation, loneliness, and connection is called For Some Odd Reason. For some odd reason, people just talking calms me. I use these voices to drown out the ones in my head. For some odd reason, people just talking calms me. Deep into quarantine, an unexpected community was formed in the comment sections of certain YouTube videos. As sheltering in place wore on, people increasingly relied on videos containing sounds of the public lives they'd left behind. The comment sections under videos of public spaces, street sounds, bar conversation, and sporting events, suddenly became confessionals for the lonely and the sleepless during quarantine. I was so surprised to realize 
these streams existed and then more so that people had felt moved enough like at whatever hour of the night to uh, to comment on how comforting they found it or how they needed it to go to sleep or the memories that it evoked in them I use this every night amazing Kate was asked to contribute to the online sound art festival Amplify 2020 Quarantine. Her submission took inspiration from these impromptu public confessions. For some odd reason, combine sound from these videos with the comments left below them. I've recently been using this while in quarantine because the quietness of my house is eerie. Reminds me of falling asleep in public as a small child. It was so easy then. Funny what humans will resort to to decrease anxiety or loneliness, myself included. This is incredibly comforting. It's been quieter because of COVID and this has helped me relax. I, I am someone who who does think about and and also believe in kind of the the power of sound to to make us feel more connected or the collectivity in terms of you know how we make a soundscape together and things like that. But yeah, I I, I was uh, amazed, but I was very moved to see to see those comments and to see how those streams had been being used. I've been in quarantine for so long, I forgot how this makes my brain feel. Is it weird that I find the occasional siren the most relaxing? Listening while ESPN played crowdless soccer would really help. Watching Milan Genoa crowdless match due to coronavirus with this on the background. The piped in crowd noise at sporting events, like I found that really fascinating um, that, that people would decide to, you know, either find their own on YouTube crowd noise and, and play it over the top of their sporting match themselves or obviously, you know, the big kind of companies began even employing people to sort of live play crowd sounds um, to sporting events. And I'm super involved in sound, obviously, and I'd never thought of kind of the, the critical nature of crowd sound to the enjoyment of sporting events, like watching sporting events, but it obviously is a massive part of it. And so I was trying to, th I was starting to think about other, other sounds of collectivity that people might miss. And I just completely stumbled upon these streams of 
of city sounds that, that people had recorded before the pandemic um, or of bar sounds. And, you know, they were long streams of several hours. And, and it was, it was incredibly poignant just to read the comments that people had left, you know. Be scared at 3 a.m. and want to hear people, so turn this on. For some odd reason, people just talking calms me. Taken together, these three pieces, one from before the pandemic, one from its beginning, and one from its interminable middle, explore how earnestly we try to connect across distance, and how heightened these attempts have become over the past year. Carr's work also encourages us to dwell on unsung sounds and even disparaged sounds, electronic noise, digital noise, crowd noise, and street noise, and realize these are just as inherent a part of our communication and sense of connection as the parts that we call the message or signal. It might be noise, but we miss it when it's gone. And that's it for this episode of Phantom Power. Big thanks to Kate Carr for being on our show. You can find her work on Bandcamp and learn more about Kate at gleamingsilverribbon.com. Best URL I've heard in a while. Also, huge thanks to my co-producer on this episode, Matthew Blackwell. Matthew's a visiting assistant professor of English at the University of Iowa and a freelance music writer. He writes and edits Tusk is Better Than Rumors, a newsletter that covers discographies of experimental musicians. You can find it at tuskisbetter.substack.com. He's also a contributor to Tone Glow. Uh, you can find Tone Glow at toneglow.substack.com. And if you're interested in producing an episode of the show, drop me a line at mhaygood at miamioh.edu. You can find links, transcripts, and more at phantompod.org. You can also subscribe to our show there or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you enjoyed this episode, if you would, please use that share button on your podcast app and share it with a friend. Today's episode was written and produced by me, Mac Haygood, and Matthew Blackwell, with music and editing by yours truly. Phantom Power's production team includes Craig Ely, Ravi Krishnaswamy, and Amy Sherseth. Our social media team is Bethany Sertian and Grace Carlos. Transcripts by Maggie Hands and Ellie Pierce. Next month's episode features influential sound scholar Jonathan Stern. It's going to be a great show. We'll see you then. Take care. <laughs>